As we begin this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions. The first question is, who is your God? And specifically, as you think about the question, who is your God, I want you to think about 1 Samuel and what we have learned so far about who our God is in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel so far, we have seen that God is our vindicator. God helps those who are righteous. He vindicates the righteous. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, in contrast to the fact that God is the vindicator of the righteous, we see that God opposes those who are unrighteous. God judges those who persist in evil. And we see that Eli's sons are judged by God, and God is righteous in judging them. In chapter 4, we saw that God's word is certain. In chapter 3, God is to be honored. And so in chapter 4, God is certain in his prophecies. When God says something will happen, his word will come to pass. In chapter 5, God is sovereign, and so the hand of Dagon is seen to be nothing, whereas God's hand continues to work throughout the remainder of the text. In chapter 6, God is sovereign, and God controls all the events of life, and he brings them to his, or chapter 5, God is sovereign, and then chapter 6, God is holy, and if he is holy, he is worthy of worship, he is worthy of of reverence as we approach him. In chapter 7, God is a helper. God is a helper. But it's not enough for us to say, just to say God is a helper. Because we really want the theological truths not to be simply abstract concepts that are out there somewhere on the internet. Right? doesn't really help me too much if it's an abstract concept that I can access on the great wide web, but it doesn't apply to me personally. So we must go further and we must ask ourselves, is God my helper? Is God your helper? And how do I ensure that God is my helper? That God is the type of God who comes and provides me aid in the times that I Need and desire God's aid, need and desire God's help. How do I ensure that I receive that help, that deliverance in those times? As we study the concept of God being a God who helps in Scripture, you see that God is a God who helps, but there's an exclusivity to that help. God helps a very exclusive group of people. And you may have heard it said as you have interacted with your friends, with your coworkers, as you've read various news articles. I entertained myself last night as I was looking for news articles to present to you with um, by going through 20 pages of Google headlines that might have the idea of God helps. And I couldn't find any that I thought were good enough to share with you. And after 20 pages of Google headlines, I was like, forget this. But you've probably heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. That's wrong. God helps the helpless who turn to him in genuine repentance. 
God does not help those who help themselves. God helps the helpless who turn to him in genuine repentance. And that is the big idea of the text. God helps the helpless who come in genuine repentance. If you would, take your Bibles and let's read 1 Samuel chapter 7, and then we will examine the text more closely. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Then the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only. For he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went up out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of the Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to them. From Ekron to Gath and Israel, Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit and Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who helps us. We pray that as we examine this passage of Scripture, that you would help us to see areas in our life where we are in need of change, where we are in need of coming to you with our whole being, submitting our whole will to you, turning from various sinful things that we have pursued 
and choosing to serve you only. We pray that as we are willing to submit our lives to you wholeheartedly, that you would continue to show yourself to be a God who helps. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. In verses 1 through 6, you see the idea of genuine repentance. For 20 years, Israel has not had a real relationship with God. It appears as if the ark has sat there. They have gone about doing their own thing. In chapter 6, they learned that God is holy. They rejoiced when the ark came back. They were happy, and yet they did not approach God with reverence. They did not realize that God was worthy of worship, was worthy of reverence, because He is holy. And so they send the ark away, and it appears as if it just sets there for 20 years. And now at the end of 20 years, the nation now turns to God and laments their sin. They cry out to God. They want God to forgive them for their sin. They are pursuing repentance. And when you and I have turned away from God, maybe for not as long as 20 years, maybe for a day, maybe for a minute, maybe for an hour, maybe for a week, but maybe for 20 years, at some point what God wants each one of us to do is to turn to Him and to cry out, to lament our sin, to turn to Him in repentance. And Samuel, it appears as if for these past 20-some years, has taken a back seat. Eli has died. There is no religious leader that is leading the nation in worship. And now Samuel comes on the scene in verse 3, and he tells the people, repentance requires turning and serving. Look with me at verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, that's one key, all your hearts. Then put away the foreign gods, the Ashtoreth, from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. It's interesting, Samuel just kind of tacks on that little promise at the end. If this is true, your whole being is turned towards God, and you pursue Him, and you serve Him only, He will deliver what is that? He's going to help you. God helps the helpless who come to him in genuine repentance. Repentance must include the whole man. As you look at the, the text, it says, all your hearts. All your hearts. That includes your emotions. It's easy to make an emotional decision. In any area, right? It's easy to make that when it comes to a car. It's really easy to make that when it comes to a car. Same thing for a house. Not as easy with a house, but it's really easy with a car. It's like, man, I've put that repair into this car and that repair. Okay, time to go buy another car. I'll spend $20,000 instead of $2,000 on a repair, right? It's easy to make emotional decisions. We make emotional decisions easily. 
When it comes to the physical world, we easily make those emotional decisions. When it comes to our spiritual lives, the same thing is true. It's easy for us to see our sins, see the consequences of our sin, and emotionally be repulsed by the consequences or the circumstances we find ourselves in. And while that's a really good step, that is not repentance with our whole hearts. It must also include our motives. What are we seeking? What are we desiring? What are we seeking to find through this process? Well, I'm repenting because I want my relationship restored with my child. Well, that's good, but it doesn't go far enough in your motives. Your desire should be far greater than your relationship with your child or with your your boss or with your spouse. Your motive should be pursuing Christ. But it also must include our service. It must include our actions. If we say we repent, but there's no signs that there have been genuine repentance, genuine change in my heart, in your heart, have I truly pursued repentance? Have I truly changed? But notice also that repentance is exclusive. Repentance results in exclusivity. Look at verse 3 once again. Who are they supposed to serve? They're supposed to serve only God. As you and I turn to God in repentance, as we're confronted with sin in our life, it means that as we pursue results, as we pursue change, that our motives and our desires to serve are going to pursue Christ. Your worship, then, will have a desire to worship Christ and only Christ. Not the newest, funnest toy, not the newest Xbox, not the nicest, newest car, not the nicest, newest gun, whatever, whatever you could desire. Those are not the things that we pursue. Those are not the things that we worship. Rather, we worship Christ. It's exclusive. That is what we desire. That is what we pursue after. Our dependence will be on Christ. It's exclusive. I turn to Christ. I look to Christ. He is what I depend on. He is what I look to for my help and my hope in the difficult times. It's exclusive. God responds to the helpless. And as we continue to read, you see that Israel responds in obedience. Look with me at verses 4 and following. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and served the Lord only. And you know what? There is no mention of Israelites serving Baal again for 200 years until 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. This is an amazing instance of repentance. I'm not suggesting that no Israelites served Baal again. I think they probably did. But as a whole, the nation itself did not, in a big uh, corporate sense, turn once again to Baal worship. They understand this idea that it's exclusive, that it includes the whole of the person. 
their intents, their desires, their objectives have been changed as they come into contact with this instruction from Samuel. And so Israel gathers for corporate worship or for corporate repentance. And as they gather for corporate repentance in verse 5, you see that they pour out water, or verse 6, they're going to pour out water. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Israel gathers for corporate repentance. And as they gather, they fast, they realize that they have sinned. If you and I are going to pursue genuine repentance, it requires that we acknowledge areas in our life where we have sinned. And as we acknowledge those areas in our life where we say, I sinned in this area, I sinned in this area, it requires that we go on and we say, I am going to, with my whole being, my emotions, my motives, and my actions, I'm going to pursue exclusive worship, exclusive dependence, exclusive service of God. And so the nation pursues genuine repentance. As we think about this, what areas in your life might God want you to ask or to seek genuine repentance in? What areas in your life is God wanting you to change in? Are there areas in your life where your whole being is not pursuing Christ-likeness? If there's something that is hidden, if there's something that maybe the rest of everybody else doesn't know about, what other areas are there in your life that God wants you to give up a hold of and allow Him to control in your life? When it comes to your worship, when it comes to your service, are you worshiping Christ exclusively? What brings you the most delight in life? If you say, you know, the thing that brings me the most delight in life is my family. There's a big chance that if the thing that brings you the most delight in your life is your family is, that you are not pursuing exclusive worship, exclusive service to Jesus Christ. If you say, when I approach service, I'm not sure that my service is, you know, primarily geared towards serving Christ, but I, you know, I... I try to do that at least once in a while. You don't have a regular means by which you're serving the body of Christ. Then your worship is not exclusive. Your service is not exclusive. And God wants us to be exclusive as we turn to him in repentance. Samuel instructed the nation of Israel, turn with your whole heart and serve him 
only. If you and I want to pursue genuine repentance, if we want to be the type of people who are helpless, the type of people who God helps, means that we must first see ourselves as helpless and come to Him in genuine repentance. If you want God's help, if I want God's help in this life, God might not help you in the ways that you and I want Him to help you, but if you want God's help, and if I want God's help, it requires that we are honest with who we are and with who God is. And as we see areas where we fail to match up to His holy standard, that we come to Him and we seek to repent and to change with our whole being in every area. We pursue exclusively devoting ourselves to Him. But the text moves on. It doesn't stop there. Because that's not the big theological timeless truth about who our God is. This is the response to who our God is. God is a God who helps. God is a helper. You see this in verses 7 through 17. Repentance is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Two weekends ago, we got to go play Monopoly. As we played Monopoly, or as the kids played Monopoly, and I observed them play Monopoly, um, people got got get-out-of-jail-free cards. Not a whole lot. I was surprised. Um, But sometimes we think that, you know, well, I'll do this so that I can get this response. But that's not how it always works. God's idea isn't, well, just simply repent so that you don't face any problems in life. That's not how life works. That's not how God works. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at, look at verse 7. Let's just look at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah to repent, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. War is on the horizon. Why? Because all Israel has gathered to repent. And the Philistines don't like that idea. Israel is afraid of the encroaching Philistines. And as they fear, they instruct Samuel to continue to call out to God for them, to continue to perform his sacrifice, to continue to seek God's help on their behalf. Why? Because of what they have done. Verse 4 tells us that the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. They're like, we're genuine, we're real about it this time, Samuel. Pray to God for us. Look at verse 8. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel does that. In verse 9, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. Now as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, what happens? God helps his people with divine acts. Acts that they could never have made up or caused on their own. What does God do for them? God practically fights and wins the battle for them. 
As Samuel is offering the burnt offering, verse 10 in the middle, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. They're marching into battle and all of a sudden all they hear is the sound of, you know, modern day warfare and they're like, forget this. This is reminding us a little too much of chapter 5 and chapter 6, not so much chapter 4. We're out of here. And as they run, if there's thunder, there might be rain. Maybe they slipped and they fell and they got you know, stabbed in the back of the neck. I don't know. But anyways, however it happened, in the chaos of running away from the battlefield, Israel won the battle. Why? Because God did divine acts. God has helped. God is a God who helps. Samuel calls the people's attention to God's deliverance. In verse 11, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as beth Car. And so in verse 12, Samuel, being the religious leader of the nation, calls them to observe the theological truth. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. It's interesting. Verse 3, what does he tell them? In verse 3 he says, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then you will put away the foreign gods, the Ashtros, from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. They have done that. And what has God done in response? And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. It's interesting, the last time we encountered the name Ebenezer in the book of 1 Samuel, it's under a very bad circumstance. If you would go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, this is the first war that we have encountered with the Israelites and the Philistines. And the Israelites have this idea that they can magically get God on their side by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the camp. And the word of the Lord, or sorry, the second part of verse 1. Now Israel went out to the battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. <laughs> they went and they camped at the place that is called God has helped us thus far. And they thought that they could somehow get God's help to a greater extent by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, it's pretty obvious that God does not help because he is bribed. Why does God help? He doesn't help those who help themselves by trying to bribe him. He helps those who come to him in genuine, real repentance. Those who with their whole heart, their whole being, come to him to serve him exclusively. That is who God helps. God has helped, God has delivered, God has intervened. Who? The helpless. Why? Because they have turned to Him in genuine, wholehearted, unwavering, faithful 
repentance. And if you want God to be your helper, if you want God to intervene in your life, it requires you to also approach Him with genuine, wholehearted, unwavering, faithful repentance. During Samuel's lifetime, the Philistines are no longer the nuisance that they once were. As you continue to read the text in verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. These people have been the nemesis of Israel for a long time, and now they are subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And you see that there is physical blessing that comes as a result. Israel is physically blessed by acquiring her God-given land. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. There is physical blessing, but it doesn't stop there. There is also spiritual blessing. Israel is spiritually blessed through the ongoing ministry of Samuel. As you see, now Samuel has been restored. It appears as if Samuel has like a 20-year sabbatical. That's not what I want, okay? Um, but that's what he got. And now he is back into the ministry. He's ready to go. And he's, for the rest of his life, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit at Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he, was all, he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Israel is blessed physically, and Israel is blessed spiritually. Why? Because God has helped. Why? Because of verse 3. They turned to him in genuine, heartfelt repentance. God is a helper. Let me ask you a question. Do you turn to him for your help? Maybe you're sitting here thinking, not sure I really know what I need God's help for. Well, the text records for us how God physically helps. And I do believe that God still physically helps. But I think that the way that you and I primarily need God's help today is not primarily physical help. The chance of you being miraculously delivered in a battle scene with thunder from the sky, very small. The chance of you encountering a temptation to sin in some way and needing to call out to God and to rely on Him in the midst of a temptation, very high. And where do you go for help? Where do you turn to for help? But there's an even bigger way in which some of us may be in need of God's help. We may be in great need of turning to God for His help. And that is the fact that each one of us is born a sinner. We are born separated from a holy, righteous, good God 
who judges those who live in unrighteousness and vindicates those who live in righteousness. That's the truth. And if you notice, the big idea says God helps the helpless. And if each one of us are in that state, that means each one of us is helpless. And so how do you and I turn to God if we're found in this state where we are entrapped by our sin, where our sin separates us from a holy, just, good God? It goes back to the fact that you're helpless. There's nothing that you or I could do in and of ourselves to merit His help. And that's why God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to come to the world to live a perfect sinless life to be sent to the cross to die for your sins for my sins why so that if i'm willing to turn to him in repentance tell him i'm sorry i've sinned against you i've offended a holy righteous good god there is nothing in me that could ever make me desirable to you and yet you sent your son to die on my behalf, I place my faith in you. God says, that's the type of person I like to help. Because I help the helpless who turn to me in genuine repentance. What does the text call on us to do? How are we supposed to live in light of 1 Samuel chapter 7 this week? First of all, genuine repentance calls for your whole being. Your emotions, your motives, your actions. As you examine your life, there are areas in your life where you probably see yourself falling short of this requirement. Are some of your emotions not right? Are some of your motives not right? What are you wanting as you turn from sin? Maybe some of your actions aren't right. God wants your whole being involved in this process, your whole heart. It really is about all of you. Will you give all of you to Him? That's what He wants. All your heart. Genuine repentance requires exclusivity. What do you need to give up? Spending too much time on your TV? Do we not have enough time to approach God's Word, to read God's Word, to observe it, to spend time understanding what the various phrases say and how they work together to make a whole, to interpret it and then to apply it to our lives? Maybe exclusivity in your life means that you need to give up some TV time. Maybe your hobbies are robbing you of being able to spend exclusive time just with God. Maybe it's your cell phone. Maybe it's your work life. Maybe it's some other bad recreational habits that you've chosen to pursue. God wants exclusivity as we turn to Him in repentance. And as we turn to Him in genuine repentance and we encounter those temptations, 
Because TV in and of itself is not a sin. It isn't. What you do on your TV could definitely be a sin. Could be because it's too much time. It could be because of the content. It could be a sin. Your phone in and of itself is not a sin. What you do on it, how much time you spend on it, could definitely be a sin. Your work. God wants you to work. The Bible says, if a man shall not work, neither should he eat. If you're physically able to work, unless you're like retired, you should be working. That's what God wants you to do. But can we divert too much time, too much investment into work and neglect God, pursuing Him in an exclusive way, seeking to develop our relationship with Him? Yes. God wants us to pursue Him with exclusivity. Deliverance and help are an outcome of genuine repentance. If you're sitting here and you're wondering, why does God not help me in the times when I'm tempted to sin, and yet you're not pursuing genuine repentance, let me help you. Look at the big idea. God helps the helpless who come to Him in genuine repentance. God's help is a result of your action. If your action is missing, God's help is not guaranteed. Are you seeing evidence of spiritual blessing in your life? As Israel turns to God, what is the result? They are blessed. They are blessed physically and they are blessed spiritually. I believe that the result of you and I turning to God in genuine repentance is that we will see spiritual blessings in our lives. If you and I look at our lives and we say, you know, I don't see where God has been my help, where God has been a source of comfort as I've gone through a trial, where God has encouraged me as I encountered a difficult situation, where God has confronted me with the truth of His Word as I've been tempted to sin, where God has helped me to flee a temptation. Maybe it's a sign that you have not pursued genuine heartfelt repentance. If you look at your life and you say, I'm not sure I'm seeing signs of spiritual blessing, let me encourage you, spend some time this week examining your heart, asking yourself, am I truly, am I truly turning to God with my whole being? Am I truly turning to God in an exclusive way? Because if those things are not true, then the chances are you are not seeing spiritual blessings. And the chances are you will continue to not see those spiritual blessings. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who helps. Our hearts are encouraged. We are thankful that we can turn to you in the trying, difficult days of our life, because you are a God who helps. We pray that we would respond to you in genuine repentance, so that as we turn to you in obedience, that you would bless us with your help, and that we would continue to see signs and evidences of your spiritual blessing in our life. In your name we pray.